Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I think we'll crack on now. Um, welcome, everyone, to the Soho Hotel um, for the launch of the latest Footprint Intelligence report, uh, Why Care About Water, a guide to responsible water use in food service. Um, now, water is, is something of an environmental elephant in the room. Uh, we all know that there is an issue with it, uh, but actually not an awful lot happens. Um, many of the people in this room have got a, an affiliation one way or another with the food industry. Um, and if one takes uh, the line from there to agriculture, 70% um, of the fresh water on this planet is used in agriculture. Uh, which is a, is a pretty horrific figure. Now, um, in the United Kingdom, um, that's in single figures. So we don't perhaps pay much attention to it. So we get a bit of rain here. Um, this report really is, 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 is now all about that. Uh, Produce in association with Mika UK. Uh, it gives me great pleasure now to introduce you to Paul Anderson, who is the Managing Director. Paul. Thank you very much. A nice welcome. And uh, from myself as well, thank you to everybody for attending today. It is, it is quite a stunning hotel, I have to say. Um, I thought very carefully about what to talk about um, based on the fact that Amy's going to go through a fantastic presentation of this wonderful report that's put together. Um, so I'm just going to spend a bit of time with you, if I may. Uh, everybody knows who I am. Um, give you a bit of a history about Myco. We are a, a ware washing and dishwashing manufacturer, uh, been established for over 90 years. And one of the focuses for Myco is water. Uh, the clean solution. Um, and funny enough, if I, can, if I can use this, you can see that. Everybody naturally assumes that the M is a white M for Myco. Actually, it represents the fountain of water. And it's been with us for over 90 years. So we constantly try and better ourselves to use less water and be very, uh, very uh, energy saving. Now, we all know that water is becoming scarce. Really, really scarce. And a few facts here. 200 years ago, there was less than 1 billion humans living on the planet. Today, there are over 7 billion. That's a huge increase. In fact, between 1900 and 2000, the increase in world population was three times greater than during the entire previous history of humanity. That's an increase of 1.5 to 6.1 billion in just over 100 years. But we are growing in a world where we have less. We are literally ringing the planet of water. When I was looking at some statistics and facts in order what to sort of present to you to give us sort of an overview of where we are, it's, it's quite scary that this is obviously a very... Uh, this is a global problem. And you can see certain areas in here are highly vulnerable. And we're also vulnerable. Tiny little United Kingdom, 68, 69 million people. But the scary thing is, is here, that's just over 10 years' time. 
we'll only have 60% of the water left if we currently go as we are. As Nick just said, 70% of global water is used for agriculture, 20% of global water is used by our industry, and 10% of global water accounted for by households. And one in nine people don't have access. It is a problem. It's a major problem. We're a tiny, tiny little drop in the ocean as a manufacturer of dishwashing. We use water to clean products. But this is a much bigger picture. In layman's terms, of the Earth's water, 97.5% is salt water. 2.5% of that is the water that's accessible. But of that 2.5%, there's only half percent that we can currently use. It's, it's a horrific problem to have. So we really need to look at it closely. So really, in summary, just a brief sort of introduction, sort of set the foundations really for Amy going forward, because this wonderful lady's done a lot of research, which is stunning. But delighted you're all here. Want to be provocative, innovative, get everybody thinking about how we can better ourselves. And I'd personally now like to say a big thank you to Amy and invite Amy up onto stage to talk about this beautiful report. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. It's uh, brilliant to have everyone here today, and we really are so grateful to Maiko for giving us the opportunity to investigate this issue, because throughout um, all of the work, so much of the work that we had been doing at Footprint Intelligence and all of our engagement with the, water, uh, with the food service industry, this issue of water just sort of kept on coming up. Um, the fact that the kitchen was a massive blind spot, that people, when they were talking about water, which people were beginning to realise was a problem, they really weren't looking at what was happening in the kitchen, which is, when you think about it, quite strange, because that's the place where most water is being used. So um, at Footprint Intelligence, our goal is always to, um, to, to do useful things. We, we like doing research that, um, that helps uh, drive more sustainable solutions and help us, uh, you know, create this more sustainable future. So, so we wanted to know, you know, what can food service operators do to improve water use in their kitchens, and what role do manufacturers have to play in this? So, um, we created this report um, with Myco, and we set out the business case and the ethical case for taking action on water. And also, there's a step-by-step -step guide for implementing more responsible water practices in the kitchen. Um, so I'm going to now spend the next sort of 35, 40 minutes going through this guide to give you um, a really good understanding of what we've uh, what we found out. But obviously, there's still more in here. I'm not going to give you everything. So you know, but and also. The whole idea of this is it should be go away and be digested and shared and read and really used to help guide um, operators and guide industry to being to understanding the need for more responsible water practices, but also how exactly how they can do it and how to start that journey. Um, I know that I have some people in this room with really great insights and great knowledge. So you know, do you know shout out, put your hand up if you've got a comment or a question. Um, if you do want to tweet, we're using the hashtag. Uh, water, but also there's a Wi-Fi code where you can open the browser, click on connect, and the conference code is February. So that's easy to remember. So if you need that, um, go for it. So uh, without any further ado, I shall start. Um, so we had a bit of um, background there from uh, from uh, from Paul and from Nick, but 
you know, why, why does food service need to act? Has anyone in this room heard of a food service operator who's been doing a lot of work on water? Okay, what, what have they been doing? What, who have you heard about? Okay, yes, Green King. They are a good one. Green King has done lots. and Yeah, Green King. Okay, so that they are somebody who has done a lot. They've done uh, self-supply. They've got some of the case studies in here. But they are one of the very, very few. Um, and uh, But when we were doing the research for this project, we... Uh, we asked businesses across, in fact, when we did the trends report, for which we launched about 10 days ago, we asked businesses about all sorts of areas where they'd been doing work. And when we got to water, hardly anybody said that they'd done anything on water. When we phoned and contacted people for this research and said, you know, we're going to do something on water. We think it's a big elephant in the room. Nobody knows what to do about it. Loads of people said, oh, you know, people who normally will talk to us said, yeah, we're not doing much on water. And actually, funnily enough, there was a, an instance where somebody said that to us. And then when we spoke to some other people in the business um, and we found out actually they were doing quite a lot about uh, a lot on water. But, you know, even within the own, their own business, it wasn't well known. So it just sort of really demonstrates that it's just an area that people um, haven't been focusing on. So to create a guide that no one um, that everyone said that they needed and, no, and we couldn't find anywhere else. Um, we did um, these in-depth interviews with uh, key industry insiders across the spectrum there of manufacturers, operators and um, a water company. And then, of course, we did a lot of test-based research on existing guides and case studies. And then we did an operator website review and we used other resources. So we tried to find, you know, we didn't want to replicate any good knowledge was there and pull everything that we could find and then get all the knowledge we could get from industry to create something that was really useful. Um, so, I've got another question. Does anybody know how much of the UK's food is at risk from disruption from water scarcity? Anyone know that stat? Well, aha, apparently, for our water soggy um, country, um, island, we're 50%. 50% of our food is at risk of disruption from water scarcity. That's because of our supply chains. This is a wrap figure. Um, the world, I mean, we've heard some, some great insights from Paul and from Nick, but you know, the World Economic Forum Global Risks Report also puts water of one of the top five most impactful risks to the economy because it jeopardises food production and that puts um, the food industry at loggerheads with other industry. <clears throat> um, so, and the other thing is, is, while we might seem like we have lots of water, the water we do have is at risk from contamination and that's often from the food's fats, oils and grease, that it's called fog, that go down the drain and the chemicals they use to deal with that fog. But um, while all these things and a lot of the facts that Paul was talking about and Nick was talking about might seem like bigger picture, these bigger picture things actually do have uh, very um, real impacts in individual outlets and across businesses. So what we felt was uh, the really important to do first is to set out a bit of an overall business case of where you know why do these bigger you know bigger impacts and how is this actually translating into a kitchen how can somebody who cares who's about water go and make a business case to say we need to do something about it um, so the first uh, stat that we found was that water costs can be between one to two percent of a company's turnover so you know not the the biggest factor but actually quite significant um, and then the first thing that you know the first argument for the business case is that you you know you obviously pay for water usage and um so the more that you use the more that you pay but people like businesses in the community did some research and they found that some no cost or low cost interventions um 
such as um, infrared technology and water saving products and staff training can help um, make savings of 30 to 50 percent on those water costs and can also help uh, sites to save over and there was another piece of research that found that just doing some of these interventions could help save about £1,000 uh, per annum per site. Now of course that isn't massive but you add up uh, the organisations who have large estates and you add up over the years and these figures start to, to really make a difference. Um, there's also sewage costs, so the water that goes down the drain. So Steve and Steve from Southern Water aren't allowed to answer this question, but does anyone know how much you pay for the water disposal, the sewage costs, the percentage that it is of the water, incoming water costs? Somebody said to me? Nope, it's a good guess. Anyone else? 92%. So you pay you know, almost the same amount for the water coming in as you pay for the water going away down the drain. So... Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty high. Um, you also pay for pollution, and there are approximately 366,000 sewer blockages a year, costing about 80 million to clear. And you know, increasingly, those who pollute or cause these blockages are increasingly fined. Um, it really, and the other really startling figure here was that 70% of these blockages are caused by this fog, this fat foods, oils and grease. So this is something that is, um, you know, is costing a lot of money and while um, these costs are ultimately going to be reflected in water bills. Um, more importantly, especially when it comes to things like fog, you pay when water-related issues impact on the business. And so a lot of these businesses, and actually it would be really interesting to do some research to find out how much, what kind of costs this can translate into. But, you know, if you have a poorly maintained dishwasher, and that breaks, suddenly you're pulling your waiting staff out of um, you know, front of house and getting them up to their elbows in greasy dishwater. And so you can't serve as many customers, you haven't got your dishes ready. You know, your staff are now annoyed, they're more likely to pull a sickie the next day or not come back to work again if it keeps on happening. So these kind of impacts have a, have a really um, big impact on the bottom line of a business, but are often overlooked. Blockages can also cause, cause smells, which can mean that, again, you know, a, a, an outlet uh, can't readily serve as many customers but also closures and closures even partial ones can have massive impacts on the bottom line because of um, wasted food and of course staffing overheads because just because the business is shut doesn't mean there aren't any costs associated so you know there's a lot of um, knock-on impacts from from issues that can come from from uh, blocked drains and sewage and things like that. Um, there's also uh, heating and chemical costs so People don't often think that because they're leaving a uh, tap running, it's not just the water. If that's a hot tap, you're paying for the heating of that water. If you're running a dishwasher half empty, you're paying for the you know extra chemicals that you're not using. You also have these hidden costs. So even for the contract caterers who don't see their uh, water bills directly, of course, the higher those water bills are, that is going to be passed on in rent eventually. So it will get passed on somehow. Um, Water scarcity is another cost to the business. And, and this is, you know, again, if you're in an area where, um, you know, where, where there is water scarcity, new developments and expansion can be refused because of a lack of water and businesses, you know, will then pay the price. Businesses are also part of the community. So if water restrictions are imposed on that community and a business is seen to be taking more than their fair share, then, of course, that's going to have, you know, an issue or impact on operating licenses, but also the, the mood and the brand reputation. Um, as was mentioned with some of the figures that relate to supply chain sustainability, 
um, an enormous percentage of our UK's water footprint is related to food production. So if we if we're behaving in a way that impacts either our local or are not looking at our supply chains to look at um, how we can help them reduce their uh, water usage, you know, again, that's going to have a really big impact on the business going forward because water scarcity can cause products to become harder to source or exhausted or more expensive. Um, tied into all of this is, of course, is the reputational impacts. Uh, if you have a, you know, a big fatberg found under some of your sites, you know, in a big blockage, that's going to be um, a pretty unpleasant uh, story in the press. And, um, and also, interestingly, this is the whole issue of supply chain sustainability, which has become a real uh, industry norm now. It's becoming very accepted within business and within food service that what goes up the supply chain is your responsibility. So if you aren't looking at how your supply chain is tackling its water use it's an issue and again this sounds like a bit woolly and a bit oh you know really does it really make a difference and some consumers maybe they care but maybe do they care enough not to come in the other people who really care about this is investors and there was a great tweet on uh, a little news story i saw on somebody's facebook feed i think it was um Myco, I think it was maybe, I can't remember, I might have attributed it to the wrong person now, but it was this um, little fact about global investors um, representing more than 6.5 trillion US dollars have called on the largest companies in the $570 billion global fast food sector to act urgently on climate and water risks in their supply chain. So again, you know, this sounds a bit woolly, but if you can't demonstrate that you're doing something about your water risks, both locally and in your supply chain, investors might not be interested in the business. Um, there's also, there's, within this, is a massive increased industry pressure. So again, if you, if you are demonstrating that you're ahead of this game um, and getting involved with things like uh, the water ambition and the courthold commitment in, and taking action on water, then you, know, you are uh, being left behind and it's a bit of a risk for your business. Um, so that's sort of a, a business case. And the idea is that people can kind of use that and pick out the bits and get some costing details to actually, you know, within the business to get support for investing in better water practices. Now, the other part, which is really important, actually, to the business case on water is the ethical case. Now, we, um, we've had some good examples of it, and Paul is massively passionate about the ethical element of, you know, it's just a moral responsibility. But what's really wonderful about water and this, and this uh, sort of ethical element is that water does have this practical but also very cultural cultural and spiritual significance and you know highlighting its value and our shared responsibility for managing it wisely can really really connect with people and it can really help um, be a, a very powerful motivator so although you know again this doesn't have a, a such a, a strong uh, business case to it this is actually this business this ethical case is very very powerful at um, getting people on board and supporting uh, water initiatives both locally on site but also kind of in the boardroom. So I'll just go through the, the ethical case quickly. Um, so water is obviously essential to life on Earth. Without it, we can't basically do anything. We can't grow food. We can't keep ourselves clean. We can't, you know, therefore we can't be healthy. We can't have any industry, our economy. You know, everything falls to pot, falls to pieces. Um, but, you know, somehow, despite knowing this, global shortages are looming. So as we saw on the other side, you know, the UN is predicting that demand will outstrip supply in 12 years by 2030. Um, 
The UK, despite the fact we think it's so soggy, it has less rain than Northern Europe and is drier than Istanbul. So we don't, um, and as we saw from the other illustration of Paul's, it's yellow in that picture. You know, we are at severe water stress in this soggy, apparently soggy country. We're actually, we, you know, we've got a real water issue. Um, and we think the Environment Agency says that we're going to have shortages by 2050. Um, again, we, you know, this stat that was mentioned that 69% of fresh water is used for the food that we eat. But the other issue that people aren't often aware of is that the water industry is hugely energy intensive. So if you think that aviation is roughly 2% of UK emissions, well, the water industry is 1%. You know, that's, that's actually pretty significant. Um, and that's obviously all the water, you know, all the energy it takes to get that water from one place to treat it and then to get it to another place to, to um, get it to the people that we need and then take it away again and clean it again and all the sort of maintenance and systems and energy. And, and that's, you know, not even including all the energy used to heat that water or anything else. So... That's when you just look at emissions, that's actually quite, quite shocking. Um, locally, again, you know, our UK rivers are in a pretty bad way. Um, this figure here that 14 percent of them are over abstracted, which means they have not got enough water to actually support wildlife. And um, 86 percent fail to reach good ecological status. Um, and that's in part because of the fats, foods, oils and grease that food service send down the drain. So, you know, these issues um, are actually happening here um, in a very sort of specific and, and local way in many ways. So, we know now why we should do it from a business case perspective, we know why we should do it from an ethical perspective, but what is it that we're supposed to be doing? So then this is the, the real meat of the report, is to set out what you should be doing, what operators should be doing. So it's kind of a step-by-step -step guide. Um, so the first thing is to find out how much water um, that you use. And this is you know, something that comes up in so many sustainability conversations, but obviously in many, any kind of management conversations. You can't, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So um, the first thing is to really insist that water providers give regular meter readings and bills. Now, the deregulation that happened uh, a couple of years ago has really opened up the water market and actually increased uh, operators' negotiating power when it comes to renegotiating bills and making sure that they're getting um, the right um, information. There's lots of challenges around getting regular readings because meters might be you know, under a manhole that only two people can lift and maybe people don't really know where they are or they're slightly off-site. But the fact is, is that these... This, this is one of the biggest issues and one of the biggest reasons why people aren't doing as much on water because of the measurement issue. But if, if people take it upon themselves within their own business, then they can make sure that the readings do happen. And you can, in many cases, not with all water companies, but with many water companies, if you take your own reading, you can submit it that way too. So there are uh, other ways around it, even if the water companies aren't being... Um, as helpful as they could be. Um, one of the interesting things, I just had a conversation with Steve and Steve from Southern Water and um, one of the f funny, and, um, uh, and Nick from uh, Waterscan, we were just talking about, the other really interesting thing about this is, um, you know, it reminded me that when you get an accurate reading, obviously there was a great example that Nick mentioned of somebody who'd got, was being billed a million more than, for their water uh, than they were than they actually were due to pay but you know there are also people who are being underbilled and eventually you know if you're being underbilled for years and years and years that's a massive risk for your business when you finally get that reconciled so the risk goes both ways and in both scenarios it's a it's a bad thing um, so the next one is once you've got your 
your main meter installed, that's great. And then the next one is to really push to get sub-meters. Because if you um, can get one in the kitchen, that can mean you can really understand the impact in each area of the business. Um, and you can also get real-time data. And that can really help you identify uh, spikes and address, um, and address them and, especially, and see what's kind of happening to cause them. Uh, this can be really useful um, for contract caterers when they're on other people's sites and you're charged on rateable value and not on the water that's being used. Um, submeters also mean that you pay what you use for water and you're rewarded for efficiencies. And sometimes they can even show real-time spikes. So, for example, if a dishwasher is being run multiple times because the rinse aid has run out and no one's replaced it, so they just keep on running it because the dishes aren't <laughs> looking quite clean enough. Um, once meters are installed, they can, they can also, one thing that was really helpful, and I did promise I would mention Green King, um, they can translate those savings into something quite meaningful. So Green King managed to work out how many pints they'd have to sell to recoup the cost of leaving a tap running. So they made it very uh, real to their staff to say, if you leave that tap running, you know, for so long, you're going to have to sell this many pints to make up for it. And suddenly something that's quite intangible for people as a cost and to the business becomes more interesting and more real. And also, you know, it could also help by fridge-proofing against any future regulation because if you start doing all of this stuff, you're going to start reducing your use. Um, the next one is to benchmark. So once you've found out how much you're using, it's to then um, be aware of what your usage should be. So if you have, when, once people, people like Green King who've managed to get really good data are starting to be able to do that, be able to benchmark sites against other sites and really look at what's happening where and why. Um, but there are also some uh, industry benchmarks that can be used that can be quite helpful. So for example, the British Code of Water Practice um, includes uh, food preparation benchmarks. So fast food is typically 12 litres um, per dish and luxury catering is 13. 13, 30. Um, so, and when you think about it, we serve 8 billion meals a year here. So that's the equivalent to 155 billion litres, which is the same as 62,000 Olympic swimming pools. So these numbers do add up, but there's ways, as I said, there's ways if you can't get your own data yet, you can start using these industry guidelines and there'll be other ones out there to help you. Um, the next one is to do an audit. So literally to start, you know, and see what's happening at every, every sort of water point on site. Um, and the, essentially it's best is to start at the meter and check you know, that it's working, check its integrity, then to do things like check the internal riser, do a drop press, and then go around and check every sink and every dishwasher and see what's happening in those areas because quite quickly you can probably identify you know, spray taps that have been taped open or dishwashers that are poorly maintained or dripping taps and things like that. And you can see for your business and your business model what's going on and what are causing the problems. Um, Another one is, uh, and there's so many people that the people that had done work in this area had often brought in outside consultants. So this is another one that can be very, very helpful. It's not for everyone, but you know it's worth considering getting in the consultants, um, and they can really help to identify where to reduce um, use and where to reduce costs. Um, and some of them, like WaterScan, actually do operate on a no-win, no-fee basis. I am not being paid to say that, by the way. <laughs> 
Um, but <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm open to backhanders later. Um, so yeah, no. So but the, so the, the, you know, bringing on some expertise to help you with people who really know about all the different technologies and understand you know what would be suitable for your business and your water pressure um, and your needs can be very very helpful. Um, and, and that's what people who spoke to us sort of said. You know, having some consultants really helped them identify you know who's wasting water where and why and they could help then they could try all these different technologies from aerated spray taps and grey water recycling and energy efficient dishwashers and um, you know ionized water cleaning systems and all of this stuff and see right which ones work with our business which ones don't what needs tweaking and having that support to do it. Um, another one that we is, is really important to focus on is this um, this fog this food fats oils and gut grease um, We've already made the case for why it's important important because it's environmentally disastrous and all of the of the blocked drains cost money. Um, but plus, the Environmental Protection Act rules you're responsible for fog even when it's been just um, transported and disposed of by a third party. So um, it is your legal responsibility to deal with it. So it is quite important from that perspective. And we're going to, in section four, when we talk about some common hotspots, we'll talk a bit more about how you can address that. Now, a really, really um, important part with any sustainability strategy, any, any type of management change really at all, is of course engaging the staff in it. Um, so one of the really interesting things, again, when we've talked to industry uh, across a range of issues and asked them, oh, you know, do you train your staff on water? Hardly anybody is training staff on water um, and certainly not very often routinely. So this really needs to be made part of routine training, teaching staff what is the norm and how how should they behave around water and what kind of water practice should go on in the kitchen um and alongside this it needs maintenance needs to be a valuable and um regular part of the routine um you know from checking grease traps and scaled up spray nozzles to rinse aid dispensers because improperly maintained kit does equals bad functionality and poor water management and then you know can lead to all these other issues of blockages and site closures and stuff um repairs and things like that and the interesting thing is, is that, again, one of the reasons why we wanted to include the ethical and the business case was is to help be able to make those ethical and business cases to staff. Because, you know, what we what we were advised was, you know, find the hook, you know, find the thing that the person is really interested in. And then, you know, whether it's somebody who's working on a site and wants to make, you know, their, their client feel, you know, look at all this added value I'm providing, you know, for them, maybe the business case stuff is going to be the real kicker. But for somebody else, you know, actually highlighting, you know, the ethical case and the emotional case is actually going to be more powerful. And, uh, and you know, and also just drawing the, the links between how they're behaving in the workplace and at home, because as one of our um, interviews said, when you explain it, staff see it's common sense. They wouldn't leave the TV, the lights or the kitchen equipment on at home. So why did they do it at work? It's training. So again, it's, you know, just saying, you know, basically just because you're running a tap, that costs money, that costs resources, that costs the planet. You know, that's just, it's not logical. Um, the other people that can be really, really helpful in this is um, the manufacturers. So harness the power of the manufacturers because they often offer training and education and, and ways to help. And they can, you know, help with all their kit. They can make it uh, as easy as possible by the way, the machine, the, the kit has been designed to be water efficient with it. But also, you know, if you put in the right tech and the right stuff in, in the kitchen, it just becomes normal. You can't necessarily waste water because of what you've got going on. Um, there was a good example um, 
from Winterhalter, they've started offering training and support to ensure that there's trained individuals actually on site. Um, and they found that this sort of proactive approach of really focusing on training people on site rather than it being regional managers um, helped to get in three months, 50% was less was spent on servicing. So, you know, manufacturers are a key ally here. And, um, and as we know from Maiko's support of this, they're, you know, they're really engaged in water and do want to do um, what they can to help operators be more efficient. Um, the next is, uh, is getting about getting staff involved in finding solutions. So as with so many things, if somebody is involved in finding a solution, then they're much more motivated. And also, you know, kitchens are extremely high-pressured environs and nobody likes to be told, you know, well, you know, this is the way you're going to do it and, you know, and, and be, um, uh, you know, preached to. So allowing staff to sit there and design their own solutions that they think will work within their own kitchen environment is a really, really effective way to get workable solutions. Um, and putting in targets for reduced usage and then rewarding achievement can also add additional motivation because feedback is so important. Um, one of the, th the examples we came across during, during the research was this great, um, Mike Hansen from Baxter Story told us about this great thing that they have got going called Green Flash. And it's peer-led training modules on topics like food waste and water. So what they do is they um, give them a little set of facts, figures and talking points that they can take on a coffee break and just have a 20-minute you know, quite casual, informal conversation about these are the issues, what can we do about it? And then they come up with some ideas and it really can help and inspire staff to find and implement solutions. Um, and then there's a quote from Claire Yeats, uh, one of the directors at Waterscan, and she said, you know, if you give them the tools to make a positive change, they will grasp them and do it. And that is, um, you know, as I said, this is not uh, specific just to water, but it really, really is important in this space as well. Um, so we sort of touched on this in terms of giving people um, agency when they're working in, a, in their own environment. But another thing that can often happen, especially with the larger operators, is it can be a regional manager who is responsible for um, you know, utilities usage. So it's not somebody who's actually working on site, who's, who's paying attention to what the water usage is or the, what the bills are. But if you appoint site water and energy managers, then suddenly that dynamic changes. And it's quite interesting because it means they're much more likely to be interested they um, especially if they are rewarded for any savings that they made they also will have um, a relationship with the people on site so they already so they can harness that and use their knowledge to find out what are the triggers what are the levers what are the things that are going to make this person really interested and engage and buy in to saving water um, they can also check that the water saving practices and the new systems that have been designed and implemented are actually being used appropriately and well and they can also tweak them uh, if they're not to make sure they're working better and they're also much more likely to spot anomalies in usage so this is again a really um, simple but very kind of effective way to help um, make sure that water savings actually happen in practice. Uh, the Last one, I think, in this section is um, is about you know this idea of always checking how interventions work and feeding back success and sharing best practice, because um, if people don't know how it's going, you know it doesn't then they're going to lose interest. So it's really important to monitor and feedback and tell people how 
you know, how much water they've saved, what the impact's been on the business. And ideally, you know, if there can be ways to reward them. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean financially, but just ways to sort of celebrate and make people feel really good about their efforts. Um, that can be really successful too. Um, and what we were found with some of the consultants we spoke to is they said when you when you could get these these uh, these sort of feedback loops back in it it was, could become a bit like a Fitbit session the staff would get really excited and like you know suddenly their efforts increased tenfold because they could really see what was happening they could see how they were doing compared to other sites and other teams and suddenly it became something that everybody was really engaged in so again it sounds like a very simple thing but it can make a massive difference to how successful things are. And, you know, and again, this whole, uh, it's very important to take this human approach to people and, and making sure they get the feedback, making sure they understand why they're doing it and have some agency in there. Because at the end of the day, staff are people, they don't leave their values by the door when they come in, they bring all of that with them. So to kind of realise that in the way that they're being um, recruited to get involved in these things is, is a very powerful. Um, the next thing is to address, uh, the next section is on addressing some of the common hotspots. Now, there are so many different um, innovations and, and gadgets that you can use in a kitchen. And actually, you know, the feedback when we were doing this research was, was some guide on all the different things that you can do would be really helpful. But what we thought, um, we didn't have the capacity to do that. So what we thought was we'd just include, um, you know, some real sort of common hotspots and top tips for those things. It's not comprehensive, but it's got some, and I won't go through all of them now, but, but it's just got a, there's some really, you know, obvious places to look and, and some really uh, key things to, to watch out for. So the first is taps. Um, oh, actually, but also when you're looking at hotspots, a, a helpful thing to do at the start is to speak to the wholesalers because they can often help um, identify what might be most effective for your site and water pressure. So that's kind of a good starting point. Um, so when it comes to taps, you can look at things like reducing the flow with aerators and pressure regulators. Um, and that's often you can do that without changing the tap fittings and they can be tamper-proof as well. So staff who are getting frustrated with it not maybe coming out quite as fast as they used to expect it can't just whack it off um volumizers can also be really effective um, where they just sort of spray the water because they because it comes out in a spray it doesn't feel as cold so that can reduce heating costs as well um stopping running taps is is a massive one uh, in a food service environment in food service kitchens it's very common to have um you know pre-rinse sprays taped open and you know uh things that are being defrosted left under running water it's you know it's one of the things when you asked people what are the biggest things you see happening in kitchens it's running taps um so but the thing is, is a running tap weighs six liters of water every minute and uh and we were i worked out for this that that adds up to the cost of a pint of beer every hour or a member of staff on the minimum wage every two hours so actually that you know for kitchen environments food service environments where most operators I speak to, they're sort of saying that the staff overhead, you know, they're trying to keep that down all the time. So you tell a pub manager that actually, you know, if staff are leaving a tap running, that's every two hours they leave it running, that's an hour she could have had for staff, then that's actually something quite powerful. It suddenly becomes very tangible. Yes, it's only, I can't remember what the minimum wage is, seven, eight, nine pounds, but that's seven, eight, nine pounds they'd like to spend somewhere else. So again, drawing these links um, is, is really helpful and very powerful. Um, Stopping drips is another massive one. Again, massively common, quite obvious, but people don't see it. They don't act on it. And when I spoke to Mike Hansen from Backstory as part of this research, he mentioned that he'd been to a site the day before where every single tap in the place was dripping. You know, it's just that people don't 
see it. They don't, or if they see it, they don't know what to do to address it. Um, but yet there's some, you know, it can waste, one dripping tap can waste 5,500 litres per year. And, you know, again, that's water that's had a lot, all this energy and emissions, you know, cleaning it, transporting it, bring it to site, paying for it, paying for it to go down the drain. It's bonkers, especially when there's, um, there's like sort of little... Uh, ceramic valve retrofits that you can put on there to replace the rubber rings and, and, and you know again cheap and expensive and saving a lot of money and resources overall um, another big uh, place to um, where a lot of kind of uh, water can be wasted is wear washers so the the one of the premium water users in commercial kitchens so it's really important to check they're running correctly um, so that includes, you know, that people are only running them with full loads because the most efficient dishwasher isn't going to be efficient if it's half empty. Um, and actually a really important time to think about that and to look at the way um, the site is operating is the end, end of the day because people are always really keen to leave it totally sparkling. And so they put on that last wash with sort of two items in it. So looking at ways that you can make sure they don't put on the wash you know, too early and they wait till the extra two items have been put in the load or, you know, that they just leave them till the next morning or whatever's the right approach for that site and health and safety. But, you know, people, um, people do need to be, <laughs> to check how they're using it. Um, so if you look at, uh, so some of the things you can look at is wastewater and exhaust heat recovery and heat retention features. This is a, an area where people have done, uh, the responsible manufacturers have made some great strides. So we've got a, a good um, micro example here. So they managed to save 21% on energy costs um, just by using heat recovery from the exhaust, which also prevents steam escaping as well, um, which improves the working conditions. Um, another one is these improved water filtration systems. And um, again, Maiko had a really good one called the MIQ filter, which removes food soils from the wash, wash water and clear them out so they can keep on using the same water again and again and again, and the same detergent um, until obviously the end. But, you know, th that can really dramatically reduce water use and be really, really effective um, and efficient. Um, another couple of things is built-in reverse osmosis, which can use reduce the consumption of chemicals and doesn't need, uh, and rinse aid, but also lessens the need for water softening. Um, and then there's also some great uh, smart systems, which allow wear washers and other water using devices to be remotely controlled via an app um, either individually as a whole estate um, for, so there was a interesting winter halter system which warns when there's no water or chemicals or if a wash arm is blocked and they can literally you know identify that one machine in that one part of the site um, and they can you know show that when machines are being switched on unnecessarily and when the machine self-cleaning program is used so there's some really um you know the, the manufacturers are coming up with some great new tech and great new systems and and really investing in them so when you know you're looking for new equipment it's so important to make sure that these there's a, there's a whole other bunch of things in the list but that you really look at all these different technologies because they will save money overall um to have efficient reliable machines um uh Back to the dreaded flog, the drains, so the food, fats, oils and grease. So uh, one thing that did come up is that, you know, there is, a, as an operator, you can slightly sometimes be at the mercy of salespeople who might sell you something that isn't necessarily appropriate for your water pressure or for your site. Um, so again, there was a, this advice to, to speak to British Water um, about the fog hotspots in your area and the best kind of interventions to suit your sites and your specific needs. Um, Obviously, once you've got these uh, 
uh, interventions and this kit installed, it's really, really important then to um, make sure that it's been uh, properly maintained. Um, because, you know, things like grease traps and removal users and dosing systems, you know, they do need regular maintenance. So going back to the point of making sure that's a routine part of training and that's factored into people's everyday, um, you know, uh, uh, working life, that they know what they need to do with these things and when they need to do it. Um, uh, and also, uh, as Southern Water was telling me when I was doing the research, you know, if you don't do these things, then you're, you can be in breach of your responsibilities and liable for any costs they incur. So it's also really important from that perspective too. Um, another thing that was quite interesting is that uh, water treatment. What, what apparently often happens as well is that people will... Um, will have a water, they'll either assume they have a water softener on site so they don't have one in the kitchen or sometimes they don't know that they have a water softener on site and then they have another one, a secondary one, an unnecessary one in the kitchen. Or the other thing that often happens too is that they have a water softener on site but perhaps it's upstairs or perhaps it's downstairs or far away or somewhere a bit awkward. So people aren't checking that the salt has been replenished and these things use apparently tons of water if they haven't got the salt in there, not so much at all if they're properly stocked. So, you know, it's really important to check, have you got what you need? Do you need what you've got? You know, have you got the right stuff? Are you using it correctly? Um, and again, you know, if you've got it on a first floor and, and, you know, have you got the right system so staff can safely get those heavy bags of salt upstairs and, or, you know, across the, the estate to the right place? So these are the questions you need to, um, operators need to be really asking themselves. Um, another uh, good point place for the uh, operators to look at is their cleaning systems and processes because this is another area where um, water can, can be used excessively. Um, and RAP uh, notes that excessive water for cleaning brings many additional costs in labour, downtime, lost material, cleaning chemicals, energy for heating and pumping. So there's a, so quite a few um, things that you can do that are... Um, can help address this so use mops or water brooms to clean floors instead of hoses um, stick to the chemical correct chemical dilution ratios and this is again it's all um, fairly obvious when people stop to think about it but the problem is, is nobody is stopping to think about it so you know make sure it's really clear on um, all the dosing stuff what the dose is and how it should be measured and make sure that it's the easiest thing to do it right not doesn't require any thought or effort at all um, Another way to check that staff are using the right dosages can be also just to monitor uh, monthly chemical usage stats to see what's being used and to see if too much is being used or even too little. That would tell you another problem, wouldn't it? So um, uh, another thing, as I said, there's more in the, in the report itself, but another thing um, is to use eco-cleaners if possible. There's lots of different systems out there, but, um, but one that can be considered, for example, is ionised water systems, which can replace potentially toxic chemicals um, for washing machines and sinks. I don't know what I've written there, so I'm not going to say that, but anyway, we can replace <laughs> toxic chemicals um, and, and can be really, really effective. So I think the thing is, is that uh, it's just important w with everything to check are things being done in the best way and reassess, reassess, reassess at every point. Um, another one, and this is where the equipment suppliers really do um, come to the fore again, is that to demand specs from equipment suppliers. So we did a, another piece of research with Hoshisaki, which concluded that um, 
energy efficiency and whole life costings should be in demand, you know, operators should demand them in tender documents because once you had that information, you could actually make the right decision about what um, bit of kit you bought because what's happening often at the moment is people operate in silos so they don't um, sit there and see you know they just look at the procurement costs and they don't get together with the energy management team or the the service team and see actually what's the cost of across the whole um, uh, bit of kit so what what the uh, what needs to happen then is that it's got to be incorporated in the, with the correct legal wording of course in tender documents so that that it's absolutely certain that everybody, all the manufacturers are given the same information to make sure they, they give that detail on water and energy use. Um, and good manufacturers will provide this and will do everything they can to help. Um, and as Mark Roberts said to me when we uh, were talking as part of the research, it's up to manufacturers to ensure equipment is super efficient to keep the operator's costs to a minimum. So they are you know, totally bought in and, and sold, the responsible manufacturers. Oh, yeah, I've just said that. <laughs> um, so the next piece is there's a, there's a, a potential as well to so save tax with efficient um, installations and retrofitting. There's some schemes where you can get 100% 100 capital, 100 capital allowance for some water-efficient technologies. Um, and uh, there's also loans that might be available. So it's, it's, again, it's not a very sexy area, but it's an area that's worth investigating because it could well uh, be very helpful. Um, the last one uh, is, is something that we talked about in the business case, but is, this is the sort of, um, this is the part of the, 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 most of those other seven um, actions are all very sort of site specific, but this is the one that obviously broadens out again. But it is really, really important because once you've looked at the water use within your own operations, it's really, really, really important to investigate exposure to water risks in your supply chain. And ideally, this will happen alongside operators will do this alongside all the other um, interventions. So um, much of the food we consume does come from areas of water stress or doubt, drought. So the next step is to, to look beyond your boundaries and investigate what's your exposure. So you know, look at a list of your known sourcing locations. Which countries and which regions are you sourcing from? And you know, what type of fresh produce and is it for part of the UK? Is it part of the world somewhere else? You know, what's happening? Identify it. And then you can use uh, tools like the WWF's uh, water risk filter, which can help to identify some of the really big risks. Um, so you can see where you should really target efforts um, most uh, urgently. Um, and then, of course, because these these supply chain issues are often very multifaceted, that's when it really, really pays to you know to tie into things like RAP's Courtauld commitment and their water ambition to really team up with others to look at uh, collective actions and collective action projects in um, locations, so that businesses can work together across the supply chain with suppliers and water companies and producers and NGOs and local initiatives to tackle water challenges in shared sourcing areas. Um, you know, and as I said at the beginning, this is this is very important because it's becoming something that investors and consumers really care about. That you're demonstrating, you understand how these risks impact on your business. Um, so, as I said, we this report is is largely aimed at operators, but there were some things that we felt we had to tell the manufacturers that they had to do. So there are a couple of points here for for them. So the first thing is is that there is no um, regulation or um, 
you know, rules now about them providing any sort of data of usage of energy or water, but they should provide it. They need to get together, agitate, get right up people's noses, as Paul likes to say, and, and, and decide on what, um, how they can do it. You know, but, but basically they've all got trustworthy data is really key to operators making informed decisions. And at the moment, the responsible manufacturers will provide um, good information, but obviously everyone's presenting it in a slightly different way. So whilst you can compare one manufacturer's products with each other, with relative ease, perhaps, it's very challenging to compare across different manufacturers. So we need, uh, we need the manufacturers to get together um, and work out a way forward with this. But in the meantime, to make sure they are more routinely providing um, this uh, trustworthy data. Um, so there's another great call, quote from Mark here um, saying, it falls on the supplier to make operators aware of water costs and more importantly, the equipment's efficiency. Um, we believe in transparency, so we often provide running cost calculations that highlight the efficiency of our equipment. This also enables our clients to see the bigger picture of costs over a number of years. So this is something the industry does need to do because, as I said, regulation isn't coming anytime soon, but it's desperately needed. Um, the, the second one is, uh, which again, the responsible manufacturers are really doing, they're really doing a lot of, to prioritise this, but, you know, focusing on innovation and efficiency. Um, there's so many great things out there. And, you know, for example, that dish, that, that flight type machine, um, Myco's IQ, I mentioned before, it's saving over 12 million meters square per year compared to older technology. And that's enough to provide a city of 250,000 people with water for a year. So, I mean, these, these are making really big differences, you know, uh, you know, on the ground and water usage. So, um, and this isn't just a, a nice to have. What we discovered when we spoke to manufacturers is that they were really noticing you know, there's an increased pressure from customers. Um, they noticed the customers had noticed how rising costs of energy, water, and detergents um, were impacting on their bottom line. So they were asking more challenging questions, and that was impacting on operator choice. So for operators, it is. Um, it isn't just a sort of responsibility, it's also a business um, benefit. So, I hope I have persuaded you lots of reasons why you should care about water. And there's not any excuse anymore because now operators know what they should do. So, everyone's going to go out and change the world and everyone's going to save water and it's going to be brilliant. Um, so, you know, do uh, stop sending money down the drain and take action on water. It's, it's you know, this has got some really good tips in it and, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's going to be hopefully more stuff to come, but, but, you know, this is very exciting. So use it, share it, read it again, act on it. That's uh, key. Um, I think we have a few minutes now if anyone's got any questions. Yes. Um, you mentioned that, um, mentioned the topic about water usage in crop and food production. Which are the most water hungry foods we eat? Well, meat. Meat's usually the biggest water um, because of, because of, I think partly because of the, all the grain that goes into it. But I have to say, I can't, um, I can't say off the top of my head in terms of grains what would be. Mike, do you know? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, quite interesting, actually, because recently people have been talking about uh, avocados, for example. And avocados have got a water footprint of 1,500 litres of water per kilo. Mm. 
uh, whereas beef is 15,500 litres per kilo. Yeah. So you can see, obviously, per kilo of beef, that's a hell of a lot of water. I think I there's like some coffee and chocolate are yeah. pretty high as well. The higher yeah. The, yeah, the higher the yeah. cocoa. The, the, the there's some, I think there's um, a WWF. Uh, report that's got all the different or in a Friends of the Earth one that's got lots of the sort of four to footprinting stuff out there but I'm afraid I can't remember off the top of my head but but as, as a general general rule meat is the most water hungry yes Charlie did you get a feel of um, which areas of the market are particularly performing badly i.e. could you say that contract agents are doing nothing so how could you do more casual buying did you get a steer of, of I think it seems like the um, individual, the independents, aren't doing much at all because it's very, it's, to them it just feels like a big cost and they can't sort of, and they haven't got the sort of CSR pressure and benefits. Um, I think the contract caterers were really interesting because they, quite a few of them saw there was a benefit, but because it's not their sites, it was harder for them. So they could, it was more of a value add. So they, it was something that they felt that maybe they weren't, exploiting as much as they could as a value add so it wasn't that they weren't interested it was that it was something that needed a bit more work and more effort but actually could be quite beneficial to them because it could show um and then there were you know then the people like like the green king who've done a, a lot on water um but even even then you know it's taken them a long time to get all the data and the readings and be able to benchmark one site against the other and that's helping them to now start to build a business case to getting the right targeted interventions so um, some of the high street chains had done some quite interesting um, work and were, you know, and some of the, the you know, the leisure um, sites were doing some good stuff. So I think, I think it, but the sense was just generally that there were sort of pockets of people who were interested in pockets of people who were doing things, but generally not many people were doing much. <laughs> so, yes. Did you get a sense for um, what are some of the biggest challenges to kind of getting underway for companies on, on this agenda? I mean, one of, the, one of the big problems that we hear a lot from the clients that we work with is, you know, if they don't own the sites that they're on, they're, they're you know, even getting that kind of baseline of what their water footprint is, is a huge challenge if they're working with uninterested landlords and things like that. So did, did that kind of come out? In, well, the, everybody, everybody said the biggest barrier is getting the readings. So, and that because and that comes because it's just something that people historically haven't ever focused on. They don't think of it like an electricity meter or a gas meter. It's just not kind of normal. And then when and then a lot of people don't know where the meter is, or it's you know a couple of hundred meters out off out of the site, or it's under a manhole that needs two people to lift it. So it's just um, and then for the for the water companies and the retailers themselves you know it's very expensive for them to send people to take readings so they don't have much of an incentive to really make sure it's accurate so I think getting the data was everybody sort of said well the biggest barrier is no one's got any data so no one knows how much they're spending versus how much they should be spending whether they're overspending underspending whether they've got a leak you know and that was really interesting so Green King said because they now have all the data that when they had we had the beast from the east last year they could really quickly identify right that's like it's got a cracked pipe because suddenly our usage has gone up. And obviously you pay for a cracked pipe, not the water 
company. So they could quickly go and save money because they knew it was happening. Whereas, you know, in, in, in a normal scenario, that could have gone on for years before it was identified. So, so that was definitely the thing that everyone came back to. So that is the most important. And it's, you know, not, and I'm not saying it's easy, but the deregulation of the industry does provide that opportunity to renegotiate contracts and to say, you need to give me regular readings. And, you know, I was talking to Steve and Steve from Southern Water and they were saying that actually it is possible for some water companies, that, you know, if, they, if they're not taking readings, you can actually give send them your own. Not everyone will take them, but that, you know, could also be a workaround if, if people aren't um, taking the readings. Yes. Amy, I was, I was reading some um, research a little while back from RAP on the true cost of food waste in the hospitality and food sector, and it placed uh, water, the percentage of water costs, at just over half a percent, uh, expresses a percentage of the total costs. So um, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there's a, there's a, there's a clearly a very strong uh, environmental case, there's a very strong social case. How do you have you seen in your research any best practices of the, the, the commercial business case being prepared, and you know how it fared alongside you know other considerations like food costs, energy waste management, uh, personnel costs. Well, this was one of the frustrating things about this research because I was really like, right, we're going to make this really cast iron. Everyone's going to like fall over. It's going to be so persuasive, but nobody really had the data, so I couldn't. We couldn't find any data of anybody that had done it already. Um, and then when we spoke to people, the manufacturers and the operators, and said, well, can you give us a case study? We had this case studies in there of little examples of how this, is, this particular initiative has saved that or this or the other. But there, wasn't, there weren't those, those really powerful figures. But I think um, this is why so when we tried to create the business case, we did bring in some of the facts and figures that we had. But one of the things that I think is quite interesting is that you know those those unforeseen impacts like the sewage costs and block drains and site closures and spoilage and stuff overheads when sites are closed and you know there's actually quite a lot of costs um putting a figure on it was harder so i think we should do that <laughs> we should find out because then it would hopefully make the business case stronger oh yeah when I used to work in food waste, I was working with a, a, a five-star hotel not very far away from here, and um, their chief engineer discovered a problem that he hadn't realised was happening when he walked past a room that was being cleaned, and the cleaner would literally come in, put the shower on to create steam in the bathroom to make cleaning the mirrors and things in the bathroom mm. easier. And of course, what he discovered that was, you know, gallons and gallons of water was just getting wasted in cleaning the bathrooms. Um, so, you know, immediately put a stop to that. He would be a good person to find yeah. out about the true cost of, of water because, you know, the, a lot of these um, cleaners are, you know, agency cleaners. So those practices may well be widespread. I mean, I'm going back a few years. But yeah. It's just an example of, uh, you know, behaviour that for people who who are not impacted by the cost of water you know i've been into so many kitchens where you see taps running with defrosting things in tink sinks mm. or um waste water uh, what, uh, waste disposal units where there's literally like a sort of a, a, a trough of food waste that goes down with water mm. you know 
gap liters and liters of stuff. Well, that's the thing. So it's just people aren't right seeing it. No, and, exactly. And yeah. they're not impacted by it because it's not their business. It's no. not their... But so some of them, so one of the operators, the, one of the high street chains that we spoke to said what they were trying to do because of the issue of staff turnover and, you know, in the scenarios where you might have contract, uh, you know, outsourced uh, people coming in, they were trying to make things using tech so that you couldn't leave the one. So all the sort of the foot pedals so that you couldn't, um, you know, operate a tap without physically standing there and pushing it or the infrared taps. And, and so just to try to make water efficiency absolutely the norm and the routine and so it wasn't even necessarily in those instances a matter of training it was just a matter of you couldn't do it another way is there a role for for the government here should there be a sort of narrative around legislation well, they, push that kind of debate well, that didn't yeah i mean i certainly it would help if the manufacturers had to have shared metrics they use to report energy and water but from the discussions we had around that I mean that that would take a long time to come but it could be very very valuable um, and it's something that if the industry could come up with something on their own that would be useful for customers that would be but um, but in terms of regulation I mean I think I mean I think what's good is that the water companies are beginning to find people more that seems like that's becoming a bit more there's more pressure coming there there is talk that maybe there's going to be some more regulation so that's again why acting now is quite sensible because then if there is more regulation um, you know obviously water meters are being rolled out more widely um, in domestic environments so I haven't really to be honest I didn't sit there and ask myself that question I don't know does anybody else have a, a view well, I, I'm, I'm guessing, and you, you, you probably know more, but I would guess that probably the biggest use of water in food service is managing food waste. Um, whether from a food waste disposal unit or a, a dewaterer, which ironically uses water, uh, or a digester or something. <coughs> and if there, if there was legislation around, which may happen at some point, around banning food waste to landfill, banning food waste to sewer, Mm. That would have a huge impact on reducing water consumption as an as an added benefit. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Huge um, so Steve, Steve from Southern Water. We are aware that there's a, a waste and resource strategy was um, published on Christmas Eve last year, uh, and that is eventually going to bring in the uh, waste food waste regulations um, for this country that Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales have already got which says that it can't go to sewer, it's got to be treated appropriately, uh, exactly the points you've just made. So that will come in and that is going to have uh, a very positive impact on both the wastewater industry, which obviously um, you've asked me here to speak about, and the use of clean water associated with that. Yeah. So there is legislation on its way um, via Health and Safety Executive, Food Standards Agency, etc. Yeah. Food waste plants love that soils and greases, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Yeah, anaerobic digestion, biofuel production, etc. Yeah. Perfect. Any more questions or should we move on to the panel? Let's do the panel. So we have um, a treat for you, some uh, lovely uh, water experts here. So we've got the wonderful Paul Anderson, who you met before. Paul, can I invite you to um, come and sit at the front here? So as you know, he's the managing director of Myco UK. 
And then we have Nick Hayes, who's a director at Waterscan. Um, he's been there 19 years. So what he doesn't know about water saving technology and interventions and getting your meters readings when it's all seeming so difficult, he you know isn't worth knowing as far as I'm concerned. Um, then we've got Phil Wally, who's the regional sales manager from Myco UK. Um, and he is... Um, also, in his previous life, he started off as a chef. So that is really exciting to have somebody who's at the coalface, who knows how it all worked in the real hothouse kitchen environment, and now can comment on, um, on you know, from the other side of the fence as a manufacturer. Um, and then we've got Stephen Williams from uh, the Network Protection um, from Southern Water, who is going to... Now, he used to be a police officer in dog handling, so don't make him too angry else or admit to any misdeeds you never know what might happen so um so, so we have got uh, a sort of a nice uh, range of um people on our panel across the spectrum so um i think maybe we could just start with uh, paul and phil and talk about you know do you think do you find your customers your food service customers are they interested in water savings and how do you sell um, them, you know, the investment in a more premium product that has water-saving features? Wow, okay. Um, I'll, I'll probably tackle it not just from wear washing, but from every piece of equipment in the kitchen. I mean, if you can save energy in a kitchen with a piece of equipment and it works out to be a viable cost option, I mean, why wouldn't you do it? It doesn't make sense not to do it. Um, wear washing is, uses a lot of water. There is nothing in this world at the moment that can clean dishes without water, as far as we're aware. Combi ovens use a huge amount of water. Um, there were many comments here about walking into a kitchen and you see things left on. I mean, we face that every day. Um, I mean, simplicity put, you know, if you stand in your kitchen at home, you don't leave your kettle running all day for the odd chance that you might make a cup of coffee at 9 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, you do that with a combi oven that's running at 100 degrees C or whatever, producing steam left on every day. I mean, that's a huge amount of water. So the human factor plays a huge part of this, holistic and common sense. But we provide facts and figures of where we can save energy. That's what we do. It's down to the customer to make that choice. Um, we are seeing that more people are leaning towards that as a long-term solution because the cost is, uh, is much better. Brilliant. Um, does anyone have a question for our panel? Okay, while you're all thinking of some really pressing questions, I <coughs> want to know about, um, Stephen, food service do stick a lot of stuff down the drain. Do, do they really need, you know, are, you, are they really going to get caught? You know, are they really going to get you knocking on the door saying, right, you've caused the blockage and here's a big fine or, you know, how, how, how imminent is the threat? And how? Can you give us a year-to-year -year figure? Is the, I understand the fines are increasing. Can you give us an idea of how much? Do you want to start with the fines? Um, the last, um, our first prosecution, the fine was £2,285 for one sewer blockage. Um, the last fine was by Severn Trent, and that was just in excess of £7,500. So the fines themselves aren't that massive, but the... The reputational impact, presumably, from the fact well, that they have been that, that's yeah, that that's the fact. Um, there's a reputational risk as well with this because sewer blockages will inevitably 
cause at least a flooding in an open area. Uh, more impactive will be an internal flooding or indeed a pollution where that flows into the watercourse and obviously affects clean water in the environment. So there, that's where the reputational risk comes with this. Um, are people going to get caught? We, we, we've got 28,000 food service establishments in the Southern Water area. We're making big inroads into visiting all of those irrespective of whether they've got a blockage or not. We're trying to spread the message. We're asking to work with people in respect of sewer blockages um, to ask them to take that into account when they're setting up using, cleaning and maintaining their own kitchens. So you are going to get caught, even if it's just me knocking on the door to say hello, um, can we work together to stop it? Um, ultimately, if you do cause a blockage, uh, CCTV and uh, our investigative powers now are such that we can follow that trail of uh, food waste, fog, as you put it so well, uh, back to the source of that fog. It leaves a lovely white trail all through those four-inch sewers right back to your door. I've seen the photo. It's quite disgusting, but you can see that it's very clear where it goes. Brilliant. And um, Nick... You know, when you're uh, talking to think, all your... I think there was a question. Oh, sorry, sorry. That, that's a very conservative estimate, by the way. It's probably nearer 150 million. Absolutely. Every, every, every single one of us is paying for a bit of that. Mm. Me included, which really irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, that way. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so Nick, I was going to uh, ask you, you know, what savings do you normally uh, manage to achieve for your um, clients when you introduce water saving features? You know, do you have any sort of examples or case studies you could give us? <laughs> the, the case studies tend to be around uh, projects. Most of, our, most of our customers, like Green King, are multi-site um, establishments and they'll roll out a, a based on data, based on consumption data and footprinting and uh, water footprint auditing, they'd roll out a program across uh, a series of restaurants or, in Whitbread's case, across a series of hotels. I think interesting point the gentleman here made about seeing clean contract cleaners steaming up mirrors. Whitbread did a whole piece on uh, flushing of toilets um, by monitoring an AMR on uh, a series of hotels and found that toilets were being flushed on average nine times during a washing cycle. Um, they also did a piece on shower flows, so how much they could reduce by uh, reducing the or aerating through the showers to improve flows. And these projects have a significant impact on their bottom line. Um, in actual numbers, yeah, I can't really give you that because uh, the customers are keeping that quite close to their chest um, for various reasons. But the consumption savings, I mean, we, we tend to benchmark, you talked about benchmarking being very important for our customers. Um, we benchmark individually, so by customer, uh, and across their portfolio. But then we benchmark across uh, industry and sector. So we have customers across the food retail uh, sort of sector in various different sizes, guises, different types of business. And it's very interesting then to, to understand what, a, uh, based on the number of covers they do, the, what a good benchmark is. So m maybe for a, 
a premium restaurant, it might be four, three, four cubes a day. Um, for a SME or a, a smaller uh, operation, it might be one cube a day. Um, but being able to extrapolate that out of, over bigger data has given Green King the intelligence to say, okay, this is what it means to us, this is how it fits with our CSR, and this is what the bottom line means at the end of it. And what kind of interventions, sorry, what so, kind of yeah. interventions do you find are the most effective? So is it, is it you know, staff training or is it you know, that you're putting in infrared sensors or you know, which are the most kind of common um, in, interventions that you just think, you know, every, every, almost anybody could I think, find them valuable? Okay, so when you break down a, a restaurant, for example, you know that um, out of that, the usage for that site, probably 40% of that water usage will be through staff or customer toilets. Mm -hmm. um, so infrared control, water, uh, water controlled uh, usage of those, those toilets is important. Um, low flow on taps and, uh, and other uh, devices. The rest of that usage, so if you move back to the kitchens um, where we've got cooking and preparation going on, the, the actual cooking part of the and the preparation of food is the big areas of uh, prep and cleaning mm -hmm. is the big areas of usage, you know, 20, 30% uh, at either end of the, of the process. And then the smaller areas of the actual food uh, cooking and um, is, is a very small percentage, maybe 5%. Mm -hmm. And the drinks that go associated with it are a very small percentage as well. Um, and it is very much then about practice and educating the staff. Uh, we, there was mention of uh, taps being left running to defrost. Um, water softeners is another big one. Um, water softeners, I think you mentioned, being neglected, not maintained, uh, massive impact for the, cu for the customer. So it's just, it's preventative maintenance and education. And does that cost a lot of money, typically? No, no. no, no. See, see, why isn't everyone doing it? <laughs> Mike. Oh, sorry. I, I just thought you might be saying something. Um, I, I, I just want to ask, Nick, who, who is it in your experience driven by? Is it, is it the Gabby Worthington's supply chain type people in the world? Or, or, or in your experience, is it more Audrey? Uh, you need a, a Gavin Worthington. Um, you know, someone who's going to champion for, for many reasons, you know, whether it's the CSR targets or whether it's more financial targets that they want to, he wants to push up to the boardroom and say, okay, we're doing the right thing for our business and our reputation, but we're also doing the right thing in terms of our, uh, our bottom line. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, it helps having someone like that, but it, different businesses, we see it coming from different areas and high and low. It's just, you find someone who's passionate about it and they can make a massive difference to a business. That, that, that's the real point. I think a lot of business probably wait until Audrey step up the agenda, but actually, all it needs is one champion. To... And now that champion knows what to do. Yeah. Which brings us on to Mike's question. <laughs> <laughs> um, question for the whole panel, really. Um, do you think that if water was more expensive, people would look after it? In the same way as it, same with energy. If energy was more expensive, they wouldn't leave the lights on. Shall I go first? Yeah. Um, yes, I do. I, I, when we talk to our customers, and uh, Amy asked me earlier, you know, is the consciousness amongst our customers um, very much up there about water? It is now. Um, 
it has been for our bigger customers since maybe for about the last eight or nine years. Um, but yes, their big driver has always been gas and electricity because the spend is that much bigger. You know, it's up there at the top of the list, water somewhere down the bottom, it's the cheap utility. I think hopefully in time we'll see that that uh, change, the margin increase, allowing a bit more in, um, development in the market, a bit more innovation in the market, which will drive better practice. But yeah, making it a bit more expensive, a bit more valuable to people would be a, a good step forward. What do you think, Steve? Sorry. Um, I, I'm gonna counter that with a slight twist on that. The, 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 there is a correlation between reducing water use with increasing blockages because all of our sewers are basically gravity fed so they rely on a volume of water passing through it so um, there is always going to be an element of we need to flush something through to keep that moving uh, especially when you've got the wet wipes issue you've got the fog issue that is always going to be a factor um, can we re we we're constantly battered uh, in the water industry about the cost of water um, and we don't have the issues of, you know, can we reasonably tanker it over from somewhere else? It's not a feasible thing to do. Um, you know, gas and electric, we can pipe in from other places. Uh, so uh, and we're, there's a world market on that. But the water industry is very localised as to the receiving environment that you live in. Do you think, do you think some of that reason why people expect water to be cheaper is because people think it's a it's a natural resource, um, and actually they don't realise how much has how much has to be done to it to make it possible. In comparison to gas and electricity, they understand is a manufacturing thing, whereas water is a. No, I don't. I don't think they do. I think you'll bear me out on this. Do they? they they don't have a clue what goes into it. You know, we get constantly questioned why wastewater is more expensive to do, to transport and deal with than clean water you know uh, you know roughly speaking it's about a pound per cube more to take it away and clean it and put it back into that receiving environment so that it can go back around the circle again well that is as we already heard very energy intensive it is a difficult process to manage all those clean bugs to eat the bad bugs you know, there's a whole team of process scientists that do that. Um, and, you know, now we've got the retailer in the middle that wants his cut as well. Um, so it is a very expensive business, but it is, in the big scheme of things, reasonably cheap. Could we could we affect that change by upping the price? Um, it's a difficult thing to, to manage, especially when, you know, we, we've got all of these processes in our business that cater for the poorly paid... Um, and it's an essential element of our life that you must have water. What about um, you guys, Phil and Paul? Do you have anything to add? Well, I think if, uh, from a kitchen point of view, if they were more aware about the costs and the savings, then incentives could be put into place that the saving on water could be put back into budgets that they could then spend on capital equipment, which, from a chef's point of view, because he doesn't necessarily see all of the costs going out from a hotel, say, yeah. all he's focused on is what is happening within his small space. Yeah. So if he was more aware about these costs, then if he knew and incentivised 
his team to make savings across the year, then they could have potentially another two, three, four thousand pounds in their budget to replace their equipment quicker, which is going to keep them happier, keep them up with current trends and just savings in general. Yeah. So you think sort of sub-metering and really kind of... Yeah, I think because they're just not... Chefs just aren't, well, not all chefs, but a lot of chefs just aren't aware about the impact that putting on a dishwasher half a load or going in in the morning and just turning everything on, not just from a water point of view, but from gas to let everything. Because the, the initial thing is go in a cold kitchen and you turn everything on because you think you're being helpful to the next guy that's coming in by firing up the combi or turning the dishwasher on and leaving it running unnecessarily. Or like you said earlier, putting half loads through at the end of the night because you think your boss is going to come in the next morning and see a gleaming kitchen and pat you on the back. But in essence, you've wa wasted five, ten litres of water for that process that over the course of the year yeah. adds up to a huge amount of money. At the back. Um, I think some of the figures you gave out at the beginning about water scarcity, where the situation is really scary. And I think probably a lot of people aren't aware of that. I wanted to, we've been talking a lot about the business issue, the business case, but if to put a message out there an influential message to people. Do you think, is it more the business case or the ethical case that will make a difference? Um, incentives. People, individuals especially are driven by what's in it for me. So what are they physically going to see back? Because if they're not the owner-operator as an employee, then if they're not educated into why would I save for the big boss then all they see is they're just putting money back into someone else or someone else's pocket. So Whereas from a selfish point of view... Yeah, I mean, even when, when you're selling equipment, it's trying to educate people, saying, right, you have a capex to spend, but if you invest in the right equipment, your operating costs are going to be lower. Sometimes the response is, well, that's not my budget. Yeah. I don't care about the opex because I've got this pot to spend. If I don't spend it... I'm not going to get it again next year. But if you got all of those parties together, then I think they, together they'd be more conscious what about what's... research concluded that the silos need to be smashed together and mm. manufacturers need to work really hard to bring those silos together. It doesn't seem like it's your job, it's made it your job. So, yeah. I think on, also on the, the commercial risk uh, for the bigger cu customers or our bigger customers... Uh, there is a massive reputational and commercial risk if they're to lose water. Um, and it, that is a good incentive for them to drive through change through their teams um, and bonusing their teams on uh, efficiency. And we are seeing that in some of the, the more forward-thinking customers, and Grinking is one of them. There's a question here. Uh, yeah, question pro probably more for Phil, uh, for... Um uh, for Nick and uh, Stephen there, what, what is it, so the, the industry was deregulated a couple of years ago, what changes, if any, do you think that has brought to efficiency uh, across the network? Okay, on the uh, customer side, um, it's been quite a challenging couple of years. Uh, the new retailers are finding their feet, um, data is a problem within the market and certainly, Amy's alluded to, 
data is king. You know, if you know what your sites are using, your property portfolio is using, you can drive change. You can influence uh, what your spend is and understanding that data. So there has been a challenge around that. Um, is it going to improve? Yes, I think it will. Uh, there is efforts from Mosul and Offwat um, very clearly driving change, improvement, improvement in the data and cleaning up the data in, in um, CMOS. But that's taking time. It's not a it's it's not a speedboat you're turning here. It's a, it's a tanker, and it takes time. Um, and it is really the work we do with our customers is about all about the data and encouraging them to contribute to that. Uh, in some customers' cases, they take meter readings and feed them back to us, and expect us to do to react to that and make sure that their market data is is accurate. Um, Steve, over to you on the, the industry side. Well, from the industry side, um, efficiency-wise, um, it's it's put another obstacle in us in the way for us dealing with our customers in a wholesale sense. Now, the issue here is is we've got the likes of Nick that does all the the billing and the you know the dealing with the customers that way, but we have an issue where we need to speak to a customer about you know, a blockage or a, a supply issue, but we have to go through Nick to do that. So the efficiency from that side is reduced. Um, from the billing side, of course, it's made it better because we give all the data to Nick, Nick sorts through it, and then sends it to the customer. So there's plus and minus, really, simply. Do you, we have any more questions? I've got one very specific question. I don't know if anyone can help me. Um, for a long time, I've wanted to understand, uh, I've come across in my line of working waste management, particularly in food waste, um, mass raters and waste disposal units. Can anybody tell me roughly how much water they use? I mean, is there a sort of an industry known to figure for the sort of volume of water they use on a daily basis? Put some pressure on I, I wouldn't. E I wouldn't even hazard a get. I mean, that's. Do you, a, you have some really water efficient technologies? Everything we try. It, the problem is, it's all gonna. It's all gonna come down. I know this is a really evasive answer, but it's all gonna come down to the training and how much people actually turn it on and use it. I mean, a lot of the times, as we say, people turn on the food waste systems and just leave them running even though they've got nothing in, trough-mounted waste systems are turned on rather than potentially having knee-operated systems that just come on for 10, 20 seconds as you're scrapping. It's just too convenient to turn the tap on. And then none of that's going to be monitored. And I think because people don't see it, you know, like with smart meters now, when someone physically sees those meters clocking up, people are more conscious to go around and turn things off. But until it's black and white in front of your face there is a need for water with them um, and it is again it's the human factor really it is um, and we just see it all the time things are left on um, there's pump systems there's vacuum systems there's there's many different systems but yeah it's uh, you've got to look at it very very closely but you're not wrong in what you say you're really not wrong in what you say back there and then we'll finish. Uh, just a question for Stephen. Um, you, you referred to the, 
two uh, operators that have been prosecuted for two cases, um, I think, for blocking sewers. Yeah, there's been four nationally now. Four, yeah. Okay. Um, I just wondered, one, are you surprised there hasn't been more? And two, at what point do you decide to prosecute? Um, yes, I'm surprised there haven't been more, but I'm also not surprised because historically the UK water companies have been very, very customer-centric and are loath to upset them. So that, that's the reason for that. Uh, we've had many, many times where we're at the point of issuing summonses um, because there have been sewer, prosecutable sewer blockages uh, and the customer has acquiesced at that point and said, OK, I'll pay your costs, just um, I don't want to go to court and explain to the Queen why I did it. So um, the the process we go through, uh, you know, in Southern Water, there's a a, a, a three-hit type approach. So the first time we'll come around and we'll say, did you know you were causing a problem? Here's lots of information about it. Here's lots of places you can get the equipment to stop this happening. And here's a letter from me just saying, you've caused a problem, please don't do it again. But if you if you do see me again, I will have an invoice with me. The second time we go around, we'll do the, exactly the same investigation. We'll look in the sewers. We'll look at their kitchen practices, investigate whether they've got grease management in, and then issue an invoice. The third time we go around, that's when we're talking about the, the legal re redress. So that's the point where we're looking at an official caution or perhaps issuing summonses. So it's not an instant thing. We are trying to work with the customers. Our aim is to get the message out there so that everybody knows and nobody does it. We will work with you. We will we give presentation. We've been to Green King and given this presentation to their building surveyors about drainage nationally. So we're trying to affect top and bottom of the tree by visiting the premises and the boardroom at the same time. Brilliant. Well, we have had you in here for a really uh, long but hopefully fascinating and insightful time talking about water and everything you can uh, do about it. But I'm sure you're all keen for a drink and to stretch your legs. So I, I hope you will join me in giving a massive round of applause to our fantastic panel. And um, Charlie will be grabbing you to thrust a copy of this into your hands on the way out. If you don't already have one, feel free to take one for colleagues if you need. And uh, we always do love uh, hearing from everybody. So do drop us a line. I think maybe is there a... Oh, no, no. Anyway, but yeah, you know, do, do send us a line or tweet us a question if you want or any feedback. Um, but yes, that's it from us. Let's go have a drink. Thank you all very much. Thank you for coming.